and welcome to Caged In. This is your first time listening. I'm your host, Petros Patsilovas, and I'm trying to find out, is Nicolas Cage the greatest actor of all time? Can we forgive him for the past 10 years of sins with his straight-to-DVD and VOD output? Or should he be sent to a government work camp to never be seen again? That reference, I assure you, will make sense when we get into this week's film, The Humanity Bureau. I had the pleasure of being joined by DJ, podcaster and now author Matt Stocks to talk about his book, Life in the Stocks, Voracious Conversations with Musicians and Creatives, as well as the star power of Nicolas Cage and rock and roll. As I ask all my guests, I ask Matt, is he a Nick Cage fan? What was his first and which is his favourite Nick Cage movie? Like all these episodes, this one will contain spoilers obviously the spoilers for this one will be the humanity bureau so if you haven't seen it and you want to watch along please do be sure to check the show notes for a handy google document that will tell you if and where the film is streaming with all of that out the way there's only one thing left to do and that's to get raging with cage In the near future, people are judged on their worth to society. And if they fall below the line, they're sent to a government work camp. No, this is not the Conservatives' plan for the rest of their term. Nicolas Cage plays Agent Noah Cross in this dystopian science fiction thriller, The Humanity Bureau. To determine if this film is of value or should be sent to New Eden is DJ podcaster, the man responsible for getting Dirty Sanchez back together and author Matt Stocks. How are you, sir? I'm, I'm well, and that is my greatest claim to fame is reuniting <laughs> the gang. I'm so proud of that achievement, man. It was a, a three to four year process and we got there December last year. We finally assembled the full gang for two shows. We were going to do a bunch more this year. Of course, COVID had other plans, mm-hmm. but yeah, man, that was that was a great ride, that whole Sanchez reunion thing. And um, we're actually working on something as we speak, a, a sort of in-depth video interview documentary type thing oh, with perfect. all four of the guys. And it's going to be the first time all four of them have been on camera together in, in something crazy like 15 years. So watch this space for uh-huh. that. Amazing. How does it feel to be almost like the Nick Fury to that uh, to that MCU of the, of the Dirty Sanchez crew? It's it's a great role to have, and <laughs> I, you know, as somebody who grew up loving that show, and I tell the boys this all the time. Like when I was a kid, CKY, Jackass, Dirty Sanchez, they were the shows that showed me in the same way that Punk did. Is you can do it yourself, and you don't need to wait for a corporate company to give you that platform. Just pick up a microphone, a video camera, a guitar, a skateboard, whatever your instrument is, and just get out there and do it for yourself. And they were a huge inspiration to me in that regard. So to kind of come full circle and now be dear friends with those guys is is a trip. Amazing. So yeah, I, I love being there, Fury. <laughs> and obviously, yeah, you've got the book coming out on the 1st of December as well. So uh, Life in the Stocks, Voracious Conversations with musicians and creatives. Uh, How did the book come about? So it's a bit of a crazy story. On my birthday, which was March the 11th this year, which was the week before we went into nationwide (laughs) lockdown here in the UK, um, I was off to see Brian Ferry at the Royal Albert Hall, which turned out to be my last gig of the year so far and probably will be. And I got an email on the 10th, the day before, from this guy called Tyson Cornell, who is the sort of the owner, uh, the boss of this LA-based publishing company called Rare Bird. Now, they've put out books by Sean Penn, which you know, is incredible. He's yeah, my yeah. favorite actor of all time. So to be on the same roster as him for me is like the greatest dream come true. They put out a book by Chuck Palahniuk, who did Fight Club. <laughs> they've done books with Keith Buckley from Every Time I Die, loads of other musicians and interesting creative people. Tyson hit me up on the, the 10th and said, hi, Matt, Keith Buckley gave me your email. I gather you two did a Q&A together a while back. I heard the podcast you did with him. I've since gone and listened to like 50 of your episodes. And I love the show. I listen all the time. 
I'm in London for what was going to be this literary event, but that's been cancelled because of COVID. So I'm basically trying to fill the time with meetings and, you know, just meet people here that it would be good to strike up a, a connection with. Mm -hmm. So I said, well, I'm about tomorrow. Um, I'm off to see Brian Ferry at the Royal Albert Hall, but I can meet you in the day. It's my birthday, but I'm about. And he was like, perfect. I'm off to that show as well. And our hotel is down in that area. So why don't you come meet me for some lunch? Now, I only took that meeting because it was my birthday and I always try and do business meetings on my birthday so I can get a free meal or drink out of it. <laughs> Amazing. That's my move. So I, I went into this meeting thinking I'll get a free meal, a free drink. It'll be a nice way to start the day. Good times. I had no expectation going into it, but I did text a group of friends. I was in like a, a WhatsApp group chat with a bunch of guy mates because we were off to Brighton that weekend for my birthday celebration which would turn out to be like our last night out on the town. <laughs> and I text everybody on the day. I said, lads, I'm off for a book meeting. I'm going to get a book deal as a joke, just completely as a joke. Didn't think anything of it, but I wanted to just send out some good thoughts into the universe. What's the worst that could happen? I get to this meeting. Unfortunately, he didn't offer to buy me any food or a drink. I ended up buying them drinks. However, <laughs> he did present me with the option of doing a book. and. I was blown away. I wasn't expecting it at all. He said, I love your show. I think there's so many great interviews in there, so many great stories. I think it would make an amazing book. Are you interested in doing one with us? And of course, I was like, hell yeah, sign me up now. So <laughs> basically, I hit the ground running the next week. As soon as we went into lockdown, I hit him up and was like, were you serious about that offer? If so, I'll start transcribing some interviews now and I'll send you a few test samples if you see you know, if you like what you see, then we'll get this ball rolling. And so I went away for a week. In fact, two weeks. I turned off my phone and for two weeks straight, I just sat in the basement of my old flat in London, transcribing the first <laughs> sort of dozen or so interviews from my podcast. So going back four years to the start, people like Steve-O, Laura Jane Grace, uh, Jesse Leach from Killswitch Engage, um, Frank Iera from My Chemical Romance, all these early guests. Yeah, yeah. Sent him a bunch of transcripts. He loved it. We signed the contract and it was on, dude. It was on. So I literally spent all of summer lockdown writing the thing, turned it in in July. And then for the last few months, we've been hashing out the proof editing, going back and forth with that, getting the final cover designs ready, doing all the internal design work. And we literally went off to the printers this week. So it's been like an eight-month process. It's been the biggest undertaking I've by far ever done. But what it did do, other than just you know being a cool project to work on, was it completely saved my sanity and, and my <laughs> mental well-being during lockdown because I had this positive, productive project to focus all my energy and efforts on. So it saved my life, man, honestly, this year. It was the greatest gift I could have hoped for, and the process has just been a joy from start that, to end. That's, a, that's, a, that's amazing to hear. And with a history in like journalism and presenting and stuff like that, is a book something that's always been in the back of your mind to be like, that is something I'd love love to do and, and was it a surprise for you when that kind of if, if that was the case it became a reality it's definitely always been something i've dreamed of i did english at uni and so my background was always in writing mm -hmm. um i think when i was at uni i always wanted to be in the sort of film side of things maybe writing scripts or tv shows or being a film journalist and then when i graduated i was sort of knocking around you know figuring out what to do with my life and then one thing led to another and i just kind of wound up working on kerrang radio which I'm sure we'll talk about in a bit as well. But yeah, from, from my childhood days on, really, I was always obsessed with cinema and with literature and with this idea of being a writer. And my hero as a kid, and probably still my biggest hero now, is Hunter S. Thompson. And so I always sort of saw myself as someone in that vein as this slightly eccentric, close mm -hmm. to the edge kind of creative person that, you know, lives by the sword, dies by the sword, puts all his art into his life and vice versa. And so that's why with the cover for the book, as you'll have seen, that's my tribute yeah. to Fear and Loathing. I'm Hunter in the car. Doug Stanhope's the attorney. You've got Andrew WK in the back as the crazy hitchhiker. And then I put Be Real in there as well because he's got his Smokebox podcast where he <laughs> has smokes out in his car. So I thought it'd be cool to have him in as well. So the cover for me is very much my way of paying tribute to my literary hero, Hunter S. Thompson. And yeah, when it came to be you know a reality, something that was really going to happen, it was a surprise, but only really in the way that the offer was presented. I always knew in the back of my head that's something that I'm one day going to get round to do. I just didn't think it would be this early in the game, um, but I'm stoked that it's happened for sure. And 
I can't wait for people to read it now because I've been sat on it for you know eight months. You've yeah, obviously yeah. had one of the first exclusive upfront reads of it. And I'm just thrilled to get feedback from people that listen to the show yeah, and are yeah, familiar yeah. with what I do. But, you know, absorbing this content, quote unquote, I hate that word, but taking in this material in a new format and to get their thoughts, I can't wait for. Well, yeah, I've, I've, I've like started to read the book. I'm quite a slow reader, but... Uh, well, I was obviously... never going to expect you to read the whole thing in like two days. Don't worry about that. But um, it's definitely like, I love the kind of wraparounds to each kind of section of the book and the kind of hearing a bit more. Obviously, the podcast, you have an amazing way of kind of drawing out these personal stories and getting to like the heart of your interviewees quite quickly and like it feels very natural but to kind of hear like like especially with the introduction and how how everything came to be with the podcast and stuff like that and your kind of introduction to each um whether it's uh is it adolescence or each the different, chapter, yeah, yeah, yeah each chapter just to kind of like get a bit more of like the insights into you and that kind of that framing of the book I think works perfectly as like, I don't know. It's a, it could like, it, it could be so easy to just be transcripts. Well, that's one thing I didn't want to do because <laughs> you know, you can just go and hear those interviews yeah. in full if that's what you want. And so when it came time to doing a book on the show, I wanted to create something new out of what I had. And it was <laughs> important for me to tell a new story and take the reader on a journey in the same way that the podcasts do um, and sort of work with existing material, but reformat it and, and reinvent those conversations in a way. And yeah, so I divided up each chapter into thematical topics. Yeah. So as you say, there's like adolescence, childhood, there's punk rock, there's booze and drugs, politics and religion, creative partnerships, life and death, all these different subjects. And then as you say, yeah, the start of each chapter I just kind of set the scene, talk a little bit about my experiences mm -hmm. with each subject and then just, you know, hit the ground running so the guests can then interject between each other and share all their thoughts on them. And it's with the show, it's important for me to not over insert myself mm -hmm. like and I'm glad that you take something cool out of it and you appreciate that what I am trying to do is get to the heart of who these people are. And I find with a lot of podcasts that I listen to, the hosts often are a bit overbearing and they go on about themselves a bit too much. And you're like, well, I'm not here to hear about you. I'm <laughs> here to hear about the guests. So when I do my interviews for the show, it's very much, I want to make them feel at ease and comfortable, but I really want them to kind of take the lead and, and allow them the platform to just expose themselves, if you will. So I try and reserve my own you know, story in regards to the interviewing. But then when it came time to do in the book, I was like, if I can just inject a tiny bit of me at the, the start of the main body of text and then at the start of each chapter as well, I can really set the scene and then you can just jump straight into the chats with the guests. Perfect. And obviously over your time uh, doing the podcast, you've spoken to some, what you quite frankly say, some real wild people, whether it's in the world of acting or uh, rock and roll, um, which leads me on to my first question I always ask on this podcast. Speaking of a, a wild man, are you a fan? That's called of a segue, Cage? that is. <laughs> <laughs> well, dude, let me show you this, right? This was a gift which I received many years ago off a friend of mine for my birthday. I've never used it for its specific purposes, but I'm thankful today to be on this podcast so I can put this present to good use. This is, dude, and I know it's an audio format, but maybe you can share this little <laughs> section of the chat in video form. This is a Nicolas Cage pillowcase. That is fantastic for you guys. Uh, yeah, listening. Uh, I, I, I will definitely be stealing this as a clip to, uh, it's to share to everyone. as well. <laughs> so this has been sat in my drawer for honestly years, years, dude. Um, and so when I, when I heard about your show through my mate Stu Whiffin, he was the guy that told me about this. Mm -hmm. um, I was like, I've got to reach out to you. Got to see if I can get on that. And if I can, then I can finally show off to the world. <laughs> this exotic Nicolas Cage pillowcase of mine. So yeah, in answer to your question, I am a big fan of the Rage Cage. I love him. Amazing. And what is it about him? Like what, what was the thing that first like drew you to him? His wild charisma. Mm -hmm. For me, he's, he's like Jack Nicholson on speed. And I've always <laughs> been, I've always been drawn to very over the top, larger than life, captivating, entertaining personalities you know be they actors be they musicians be they whoever and as you mentioned you know that's a, a big part of my show is trying to like 
deal with these sometimes controversial people in a personable way and try and get to the root and heart of who they are behind this, you know, extrovert persona, which the world knows. And with Nicolas Cage, like he is so bombastic sometimes and larger than life. But then you see in films like Adaptation and Leaving Las Vegas and, you know, these a lot more studied, nuanced performances that he puts in, like what a, a brilliant artist he is, what a great actor he is. Um, and he's just as a, as a personality, as a character, he fascinates me. And I, I was within meters of him once. I didn't get to chat with him, but I was in the vicinity of the Rage Cage at the Guns, uh, sorry, the ACDC show about four years ago when they got rid of Brian Johnson for a while and then they got Axl Rose in, right? Mm-hmm. And so that was what also led to the Guns N' Roses reunion because it got Axel sort of back doing arena shows, turning up on time, singing <laughs> well. I think Duff was at the London show. Duff McKagan was at the London show. So I believe they were reconnecting at that. But Nicolas Cage, who's good friends with Duff McKagan and, you know, Marilyn Manson and Vince yep. Neil and all these other rock and rollers, he was in the sound desk at the show. And my ex-girlfriend's boss is Guns N' Roses' booking agent. So we had like the all-access pass. So we go into the sound desk, and in the sound desk is Duff, who she works with and knows, and I've interviewed a couple of times. So we're like saying hello to Duff and his wife, Susan, and right next to them, and I kicked myself for not <laughs> saying hello to him, at least just saying hi, was Nicolas Cage. And he was just in there like suit, just rocking out to ACDC, having the time of his life. Just, yeah, what a missed opportunity. Gutted I didn't go and say hello to him, man. But he was there. He was loving it. He's a rock and roller. Yeah, well, he's got this kind of weird thing that he's got this wild man side to him, but then he's almost got a foot in the um, the old Hollywood. There's like there's a mystique about him, and you can tell whether it's his kind of fascination with Elvis Presley. And he's, it looks like from the outside, especially, um, what, what the, the tidbits we get from him, that he is very much like... He likes that old school Hollywood tradition of like, I turn up, I act. And like, he's not somebody splashed across the papers in regards to like tabloids and stuff like that. It's very like little we tend to know about him, whereas like other actors. And he's, um, he's the probably one of the only, yeah, like actors I've never, never heard do a podcast. Like, he's a movie star, man. Yeah, he's, he's a, a movie, movie star. star. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Obviously, you've seen that video of him drunk brawling with Vince Neil in the middle of the day in Vegas. Yes. <laughs> and he's trying to restrain Vince like, and get him in a headlock. It's so good. It's like clearly the middle of the day. They're shit-faced drunk. It's incredible. You get these amazing, as I said, like tidbits of like who he is, whether it's like stuff, stuff like that. Like, yeah, breaking up fights or he's like having sushi with Crispin Glover. And it's like, wow, what would a night with those two be? Or is the amazing recent interview he did where it's just a conversation between him and Marilyn Manson, uh, which some people uh, are saying on the internet can't be can't be right because they are one and the same. Because yeah, that's uh, it, right? No one's ever seen them together till <laughs> yeah, then. Yeah. And you're like, ooh, mind blown. <laughs> amazing. So, what was uh, the first Nick Cage film you remember seeing? It has to be Con Air. And around that time, I think I was 11 when that film came out. And that was when I was really getting into more adult films. So I'd gone through the whole Disney and musicals and Westerns as a kid. And then I'm starting to get into more, you know, adult orientated, be they action or thrillers. And I just, I was obsessed. Me and my friend, Matt, another Matt that I went to school with, we were obsessed with that movie for years. And it's such an amazing, over the top, hilarious iconic action movie you've obviously got john malkovich you've got danny trejo you've got john cusack like the cast steve buscemi the cast is ridiculous and his his performance in that is so over the top so cheesy but yet so right for the tone of that film and you know put the bunny back in the box so many classic quotes from that film as well and when i saw that film for the first time and saw him in a film for the first time you know, as I'm sure a lot of people had the same reaction, I was just like, who is this guy? I need to see everything he's done. And then right off the back of Conair, you had the rock and face off, like immediately, bang, bang. <laughs> and those three films in a row for me, as I said, as I was just getting into more adult cinema, were just like the pinnacle of action at that time. You obviously got Sean Connery and John Travolta yeah, and yeah. rock and face off with him as well. And I think that those, that trilogy, those three films for me was what sent me 
down the cage rabbit hole. And then I remained down there for the next, you know, I'd say six to seven years. Solid. <laughs> How would you have seen this? Would this have been like uh, a rental from like a video shop or would it have been on TV? Um, yeah, it would have probably been a video rental. And then we would have watched it many more times. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. When DVDs started hitting and you used to have DVD parties as a kid. And, and you know, it's one of those movies. Because back then you didn't have a streaming platform with hundreds right. of titles. You had a handful. And so you'd rewatch the same movies week in, week out, and they'd become ingrained in your brain. You'd know the script inside out. You'd be quoting it all the time in life. And yeah, it was one of those movies which would be like consistent throughout my entire years at school as just like the go-to Friday night movie with your mates. Well, it's that thing as well that like um, at that stage of Nicolas Cage's career as well, like for a lot of people that would have been their first like introduction to him and it's like that thing like you're saying about you didn't you only had a handful of films to watch and like you you'd rent one it's it's comparable to like when you had the pocket your pocket money and could only buy one cd and it's like that like whether it's good or not you're gonna love it and um I, and yeah, you've I, committed right you've bought yeah. it so even if it isn't the best you've got to live <laughs> with it and then you eventually turn out loving it and you find the value in it yeah, and with with that kind of introduction to that era of Cage as well, it's a similar thing to me. It would have been a, possibly that would have been like one of my earliest uh, memories of Cage. It's like you then realise, and it's kind of around the same time being into the Red Hot Chili Peppers, finding out, oh, they had albums before Blood Sugar Sex Magic. And then it's like you kind of get introduced to this weird and wonderful side of cage whether it's like wild at heart or even further back the stuff that he did with his uncle like um Peggy who's Sue that guy her. again <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's mad isn't it that he's of that lineage and i mean his first movie i believe was fast times right yeah that was his first movie and then straight after that was when he started doing the movies with francis ford coppola mm -hmm. and rumblefish for me which is why i think we got talking in yeah. the first place uh, one of my favorite movies of all time, just because I love Mickey Rourke. I love Matt Dillon. I love Dennis Hopper. Like that cast is phenomenal. Chris Penn. And you got Nicolas Cage in that. And those first three films that he did, which is Fast Times, Wild at Heart, Peggy Sue Got Married, whether they're the first three, but they're certainly no, the no, early yeah, yeah, yeah. films. Like his work in that is amazing. And even then when he's a kid, he's so charismatic mm -hmm. and so watchable on screen even though he's not the main star in any of those movies by any stretch peggy sue of course is when he becomes more central but you know even when he's like a cameo bit part in a movie you're watching him and you're like i want to see more of this guy mm -hmm. he's captivating yeah i always have this like thing that with cage even if the films are duff he will sometimes bring something to it there's something i mean there's something in it whether it's like I don't know, your favourite guitar player, they might not, or favourite band, there might be that one track on the album. I feel like Nick Cage and his performances will give you that one moment where you go, that scene, he did something really special and I want to I wanna see more of it. Sometimes that leaves you obviously like bitterly disappointed because you're like, why couldn't every scene have been yeah. like at that yeah. level? Like, why, why, why have we had a load of like duffers for the rest of it um i'd but, love to know what his energy like is on set like how he approaches performances whether he's the crazy method guy that's in character the whole time whether he just can switch it on the minute they say action and then drops it the minute they say cut like i'd love to watch that guy work especially with some of his more outlandish performances like you mentioned wild at heart a minute ago when i started really getting into cinema and i started you know going into the auteur theory and realizing that certain filmmakers had a distinct style and a voice which, you know, was across the board their own. And you could tell from a film, oh, I'm watching, you know, the Coen brothers right now. Mm -hmm. And you see him in Raising Arizona and he's just so funny in that. It's such a great movie. And then fucking Wild at Heart, David Lynch. Like that for me was when I was really like, this guy can act. Mm -hmm. And that performance in that movie, because it's such a dark, twisted funny sinister brilliant movie and when he has that snakeskin jacket and he's like this is a symbol of my individuality <laughs> and he's just bonkers over the top and you're just watching him in amazement like this guy is the shit mm -hmm. <laughs> and then yeah like uh yeah mo mo well moving forward in his career he's done like some some amazing stuff and to 
Paul, back to a point you made uh, ages ago about him. Uh, he has actually said uh, one of the things that he is, like the performances where he's the closest to who he actually is, is Joe. Like, right. A, a film we talked about off mic, but like, yeah, yeah. That really like makes me think like, oh, what a like, what a guy. Do you know what I mean? Like, like, because that is like, that is, I for me, that is like a kind of Adam Sandler in Uncut Gems kind of role, but never got that like, never got the attention that it deserved. Yeah, Mandy as well, man. A very mm -hmm. different movie to Joe, and a very obviously different performance, but. I feel like both of those movies in recent years have just been overlooked criminally mm -hmm. by, you know, the, the critical community, by the, you know, the mainstream popular community as well. And I thought Joe was amazing. I thought he was just a really grounded, solid performance in that movie. I thought he was great. So what is your favorite Nick Cage movie? Well, <laughs> I mean, that's the question of all questions, isn't it? Um I mean, I think Wild at Heart is my favorite Nicolas Cage movie just because I love David Lynch so much. But my favorite Nicolas Cage performance and, and the, the Nicolas Cage movie that speaks to me the most and the one that I remember the most fondly and the one that I feel the most personal connection to is Snake Eyes. And I just think in that film, that character, I saw it when I was about 13. It was soon after that mm -hmm. run of Conair, the rock face off Brian De Palma, who I'd later learn was that, you know, one of the new Hollywood school with Coppola and Spielberg and Lucas and all those guys and Scorsese. And he'd done all these amazing movies like Carrie and mm -hmm. obviously Scarface and Carlito's way. And snake eyes for me, like the character that he plays in that he has everything and then he loses everything. And it's kind of like that king for a day thing, right? Of like, well, king king of comedy, sorry, where he says it's better to be king for a day than schmuck for a lifetime. <laughs> and and that role for me as a kid was like, you know what? I'm just going to go for it in life. Like, I'm going to live for the good times. I'm going to take the extreme lows with the extreme highs. I'm going to gamble with with my life and with everything. And it's, it's a very reckless way to live. I wouldn't advise people out there listening to this to live their <laughs> life that way. But it's a mantra that stuck with me. And it was really, I think, when I saw that film and that character and what happens to him in that film, that I started thinking, like, I want to be somebody in that vein, that that character lives his life that way, fearlessly, courageously, recklessly, for the moment. And yeah. I just, I haven't seen it in years, but I'd love to rewatch it and, and see if it still has that, you know, personal impact that it did on me as a young kid and i just remember thinking it was a slick cool movie he's got amazing suits in it he looks like a fucking movie star <laughs> and i love that film well it's one of those films that like really grabs you by the throat because it's got that amazing like one shot set piece at the beginning that kind of like for i imagine like myself like you have that stage where you're like a bit of a like a film real geek about things and like stuff like that is the stuff that really gets you like oh yeah like you, when you see the craft at work and especially some it's and, the and, boxing scene is it is it the yeah, scene yeah, of the boxing match yes yeah, yeah. going through the going through the kind of stadium and um i had the privilege of speaking to nicholas cage's stand-in from that period and he's right on on this he, show, yeah? yeah or yeah, just yeah. in life? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's what I do it's what I do now, just like kind of um he told me that took uh three days to set up that shot and I'll bet. with the kind of stadium scene, they had the same extras. What like they choreographed it so whilst he went out of the stadium in the time that it took for him to get back, they all had to move to the other side of the stadium instead of hiring like 20,000 extras they were like we'll just get 10,000 do you know what I mean it's like and they, then they're they, like go go yeah yeah go, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and it's like it just sounds like all of that kind of stuff and like yeah he told me as well like in regards to Nicolas Cage is one of the like nicest people he's ever met like despite this kind of outward um projection a lot of people have that he is this joke and all he is is this sizzle reel of Nicolas Cage loses his shit. Is mm -hmm. you, if it's your birthday, you're getting you're, you're looking like Rick Santoro in a new Armani suit, or do you know what I mean you're getting a Rolex watch? Or if 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 you're a part of the kind of Cage inner circle, like it, on those films, he's taken the, he was always taking like the same people to the to the next film. It wasn't like I'll just take who's available. It's like 
I like I like that hair hair and makeup person. Come along, like join the cage train, and we'll. we'll He's the real we'll deal, man. That's yeah. nice when you hear that people are like that. They're they're just real and authentic and and loyal and generous. That's rare. Mm-hmm. It's rare in, in the film and, and the music industry. So when you hear that someone's like that, it, I think it makes you like and appreciate their work even more. Perfect. Well, we've talked about the dizzying highs of Nicolas Cage's career. <laughs> uh, I guess it's time to kind of have a little uh, chat and try and dissect the Humanity Bureau. Humanity Bureau case file 56672. Chester Hill, white male, age 73. Deportation is scheduled for next Tuesday at 9 a.m. As you know, across Humanity Bureau, New Eden will provide you with a fresh start. I'm no fool. I know the truth. I dined at the White House. It was a pretty good meal, too. There's little enthusiasm for New Eden. Rumors of overcrowding and disease. Chester Hill said he knew the truth. Chester Hill is a sad old man. Rachel Weller, single mother, age 30. Son Lucas, age 11. You and your son are to be transferred to the resettlement colony of New Eden. It's for the best. People are desperate, can't find clean water, soil won't grow food. Why do you want to stay here? This is where my son and I belong. This will answer all of your questions. My brother and his wife were deported to New Eden three years ago. I haven't heard from them since. What have we done? We have to leave. Take only what you can carry. Whatever Cross is planning, make sure he doesn't succeed. Anyone who approaches you will be hostile. We'll die if we head north. We'll die if we stay here. It's suicide. Let the revolution begin. Was this your first time watching this film, Matt? It was my first, and it will also definitely be my last. <laughs> um, <laughs> could you have a, a, a good stab at like giving us a synopsis of this film? How would you how would you kind of sum it up to someone who hasn't seen it before? Yeah, I mean, you said at the intro, it's it's a fairly straightforward premise. It's just your typical dystopian movie. It's the end of the world. There's sort of the privileged and elite people in one place and then the rest of society fending for their lives outside. And you've obviously got a corrupt government. You've got overzealous law enforcement. And there's this kind of idea that there's a better world out there. And, you know, you see that in movies like everything from War to World to, you know, all these films have this idea of like a mm-hmm. safe haven that's just out of reach. And he, I guess, goes on this quest with a woman and her son to get to Canada and and to find safety beyond the wall, as it were. Um, So it's, yeah, it's your typical dystopian kind of psychological thriller, I guess. Um, But, I mean, tonally, this film is all over the place. Well, yeah, and it, it, it had a whiff of being like, a re- like somebody's watched Blade Runner and gone, let's try and do that on a shoestring budget. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, like- uh, you can see that there is no money in this film, can't you? From the car scenes when they're driving along, and you're like, oh, this just looks so cheap. Like every set looks so cheap, so basic. And apart from Nicolas Cage, there's no recognizable talent in in the cast whatsoever. Even the directors and the writers and the producers, like everybody involved in this film is a total nobody. And you sort of wonder with movies like this, why did he do it? Because he surely doesn't need the money. And you, I always wonder with films like this, you know, because Mickey Rourke is another one, right? He's my favorite actor. Him and Sean Penn are my top two. And Mickey Rourke's even more guilty of, of this than Nicolas Cage because he's had a lot harder career because mm-hmm. of things he's dead, uh, things he said, sorry, and done. Um, but he is the, like the straight-to-video king, Mickey Rourke, and, and he's been in so many shit, cheap films that are so beneath him. But I understand why he made all those, because he had to, because he couldn't get arrested in yeah. Hollywood, 
and he was down on his luck and he had to just get out and make ends meet. But Nicolas Cage, you think, you didn't need to do this film. And nothing about that script when you read it must have been enticing in any way to anybody you know if you compare oh let, leaving las vegas or adaptation you get to these scripts for these films that he's just done that are mind-blowingly brilliant and then you think of i'm picking up the humanity bureau script and going yeah i think i want to make this like why what what drove him to make this movie which when you look at it as well it had a budget of uh 4.3 million dollars so like in today's... where did that go nicholas cage yeah well yeah in, in today's it in today's kind of like uh cinematic market like uh, a studio like blumhouse would do like amazing things with that budget whereas this it feels like the money has gone on like nicholas cage like the use of cg in this we get a, a cityscape at one point yeah 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 and it's just horrible and then it goes to a close-up of like cage outside it looks like it could be like the dmv or something and they've just put up a sign that says <laughs> the humanity bureau um, yeah so yeah you... I, th I, th I think that the the whole budget would have gone on his fee and the thinking was probably if we get this big name in it it'll expose it to more people um but what a waste of time i couldn't believe it as i was watching it <laughs> i was like this is it's one of the worst films i've ever seen in my life um I, i'd love to know you know, somebody who's probably seen more Nicolas Cage stinkers than me. How does this compare on the scrap heap to some of the other absolute, you know, oh, th 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 this is some duds that he's made, you know, before or since this? This is down there just because it's very much, um, it's boring. Do yeah. You know what I mean, and, and Cage doesn't really deliver. Um, well, that's uh, the thing, isn't it? Is, you know, sometimes, as you said earlier, he can be in a less than good film, but he can elevate it with his performance mm -hmm. and his performance in this is just completely straight. There's no wackiness to it to make it kitsch in any way. It's not engaging. Um, it's, it's, it's not in any way like memorable. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's just, you, you, I have to wonder why he did it because, you know, <laughs> I can, I can sort of see with certain films, Oh, it's his chance to go off and have fun in that role. But it doesn't look like a fun role. It doesn't look like he had fun making the film. Yeah. So, like, <laughs> to get into, like, the machinations of the plot, just, like, I do like to almost uh, tell people a brief thing of, like, give them some points of the film just so they can listen to this rather than wasting uh, 94 minutes of their time That's watching it, so they film. don't have to watch it, yeah. <laughs> so, obviously, yeah, his do job... His job is to go around and assess people in this really ham-fisted, like, the politics in this, it is somehow trying to be, like, politically aware and is so politically deaf at the same time that it's just, like, especially in the fact it's kind of, it's supposed to be a critique on Trump's America, right? I didn't take that from it. Well, the only, the, the, the kind of, the, the bits I got from it was when he first um, goes to speak to the guy who used to be a former senator. Uh, near oh, no, the, they're, they're, Trump's actually in it, isn't he? There's a, yeah, he's like, oh, I, had, uh, I had dinner at the White House. And he's like, it, he used to be a... It cuts back and it's a photo, yeah. Yeah, of yeah. Him, him and Trump. And then, obviously, there is a line that is really, like, you can tell the, the screenwriter at that point, like, went, cracked his knuckles put down like closed his laptop and went i'm taking the day off because th <laughs> there is a line in this film which is uh the son um oh no no uh, yeah the the son noah is is noah no lucas the son asks, lucas yeah mum why wh like why would they scare us like this and the mum replies because it's easier to build fear than it is to build a wall Right. So, yeah, it's clearly an analogy and a, an what is it? An, an alleg allegory yeah, yeah, yeah. Of, uh, of, of Trump's America. Yeah. I mean, it, it didn't leave me with that. No. Take. <laughs> <laughs> but now now you say it like that, I can absolutely see that that was their <laughs> that was their intent. It just didn't quite hit home. Well, it's, it's, it's a very muddied film in the like a lot of like futuristic stuff and kind of dystopians and stuff like that look stylistically look great. Like this from whether it's the like weird, like phone CG that they have, like it's like 
why not make it look like a practical thing where it's like you're enough time in the future where it's like it looks like a count like an old calculator something that's physical do you know what I mean like that that to me is far more interesting in kind of like um anything this dystopian where it's like repurposed like old technology and something's built as opposed to this like weird I don't everything's got this sheen to it that's just like makes it a bit like this is crap isn't it like <laughs> I think the thing now as well right is TV shows have such big budgets yeah. and such yeah, yeah. incredible set designs that you know this looks not even good enough to be a TV movie mm-hmm. because the standard of television now is so on point and you know you like I'm watching the Queen's Gambit at the moment and the costume and the set design in that it completely you know it transforms these sets into actual living breathing authentic convincing pieces of, of set design, whether mm. they're in Mexico or wherever they are on location, you're in it and you're there. And then you watch this movie and you're like, as you say, it almost seems like you're watching an old PlayStation one video game segue <laughs> scene when they go from like one level to another, <laughs> like you've seen graphics in those games that are better than some of this. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, we get to see the humanity bureau offices, which like, I've seen like co-working spaces or like, do you know what I mean? Like you see the Google offices and it's like, that looks futuristic. This looks like it's everybody's on Windows 95 and like they've just got a projector on the wall. And then like, obviously I referred to you as the Nick Fury of getting uh, Dirty Sanchez back together. But we have Hugh Dillon in this, who is like the kind of Adam, the the leader of the, the Humanity Bureau, who kind looks like the kind of original comic book uh version of nick fury with this kind of black jacket big collar and this what i can only describe to people who haven't seen it is like if you've ever popped the lens out of a sunglass like a pair of sunglasses and just held it in your eye that's like that is his eye patch like it's again it's it's this where where like Where's the where's the production? Where's the where's the kind of costume department on making something look cool? Like the scene where I really checked out, if I hadn't already, was he kills this guy's wife and kid, right? You don't see him do it, but it cuts away to their dead bodies, and it's just this really bleak, horrible little cutaway scene, and you think, oh, he's just murdered this poor mm-hmm. guy's wife and kid. And then in the next scene, or a couple of scenes later, when he next really appears. He drops his little glass eye and it goes down into this like vent and the kids like jumping down there, scrambling after it. And it's almost like borderline slapstick. It's like, oh, the villain's lost his glass eye. And you're like, well, hang on. He's just murdered a woman and a child a minute ago. And now you're trying to present him as this funny kind of comic book, wacky, you know, PG-13 villain when he's just committed this absolute atrocity a minute ago. And tonally it just flips and you're like, whoa, like... Is this a comedy? Because that was really dark. And I just, at that moment, I was like, this has no, like, <laughs> there's no subtlety whatsoever <laughs> to this script. <laughs> well, at what point did you guess the the twist to this film? I think almost straight away. You sort of know with a film like this, I know exactly what I'm working with here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you kind of then just go, now it's just a waiting game to see how it plays out. <laughs> so yeah so the twist in this is that you think of you're led to believe at first that nick cage had a change of heart and he's kind of going against his job to save this woman and her child and it yeah. turns out all along she tells a story in the car at some point and it's uh, well there's a couple there, there, there's a couple of twists but we'll get to the kind of more the the weirder one in a moment but like um that he like she she tells this story of the dad of this boy used to be like a, a city dweller as they're kind of known and yeah right a city dweller <laughs> as well in, in in the kind of in one of probably the most boring moments uh put in this film of just nick cage um this woman and her son sitting in a car for maybe 10 minutes like we get her doing a crossword we get nick cage reading a book and we get the kid just flicking matches and it it, the time drags on it's then revealed that nick cage is the kid's son and it's like by the time is the kid's dad yeah kids yeah 
kid's son. Bloody hell. The kid <laughs> that would be son. a twist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Some kind of a Terminator style, like, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. From the future. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like, by that point, I. I imagine with you, I, I didn't care that that was like the kind of payoff for this story. Like, No. And when Nicolas Cage dies, dun, 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 spoiler alert, at the end, I didn't care then either. I wasn't sad at all. I was like, thank God that's over. <laughs> yeah, because, and then, and then the kind of fight, like, we, yeah, we get a twist earlier on that the mum isn't actually the mum. She is a neighbor who bought the kid when he was two years old because the and and we get descriptions of things that have happened in this future past, like the the past of their future that sound like the movie I want to be watching. There is a moment where she says like, "Oh, you don't understand like people were eating their neighbors, and I'm like, "Why aren't we watching that movie? Why are we watching this like kind of boring road trip when it, like that's what gonna... it is isn't it it's yeah. just a really shit road trip <laughs> <Yeah>. movie <laughs> especially when you compare it right to like is it the quiet place with emily blunt mm -hmm. there's the quiet place there's also that amazing film with sandra bullock where she has to go out Bird and box. cover her eyes yeah, yeah, yeah. you see films like that and i know there's more of a supernatural element to to them in places but you see films like that and you're like that's what a dystopian movie should be like like that's a movie that's gripping, that's thrilling, that's original, and and you're you know you're captivated from start to end. And then you see this, as you say, and it is it's like a really shit road movie. Well, one of the things that like it reminded me of just like straight away, and it's that kind of setup of him going to first like assess this guy is Blade Runner twenty forty nine, and it's yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. That's kind of got a very early similar scene where he like. Uh, Ryan Gosling's character visits Dave Batista, and it's like as soon as that like popped into my head, I was like, you know what? I haven't watched that since the cinema. I'd love to be watching that right now. And I feel like any film that makes you think, ah, oh, how good, how good would it be to be watching that film right now instead, fails immediately, right? All, all films' job should be is to make you forget about your present yeah. reality and mm -hmm. take you away into this fantasy world. And the minute that breaks and you come out of it, and as you say, you start comparing it negatively to another work of fiction, then it's double failed because <laughs> not only are you immersed in the cinematic universe of the film that you're watching, but you start daydreaming of another one. You know, it's like being with a wife who you just don't fancy and don't love. And all you can do is think about this saucy mistress that you want to get with. <laughs> it's like that. It's just, this is double failure. This is awful. Get me out now. <laughs> and one of the things as well, when it gets to like right to the end and we get this kind of reveal that um, Cage's character has had these like uh, friends in the North, in Canada all along that he was going to. I was like, well, there's been no, there's been no, um, like hint of this throughout the film. And when that comes, it's like, again, I just don't care. No, I mean, like, it's uh, <laughs> it's just a shit film, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the long and short of it. Like, there is nothing. I wish I could find one scene or one moment or one detail of this movie that's redeeming, but there just isn't. Even in the kind of cage universe, like his haircut or that costume mm -hmm. or that one little moment where he shouts that or throws that rock. There's not a single moment of redeeming entertainment in any of this. And it's <laughs> it's maybe the worst film I've seen in 10 years. The last <laughs> time I remember being this underwhelmed by a film and even that had moments of hilarity was Freddy versus Jason. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've seen that film, but there's one scene where... I think uh, it must be Jason bashes um, this kid to death in a sleeping bag against another kid. And it's just a hilarious, stupid little scene that made me laugh out loud in the cinema. And I was like, well, at least in that movie that was awful, there was that one moment. Mm -hmm. And with this, there wasn't a single moment where I was like, ha, that's all. That's quite funny. There was <laughs> nothing, man. I was looking for it. I was wanting it. It <laughs> never came. That sometimes delivers like the the hardest films to talk about on this podcast. I find is the ones where it isn't so bad that it's like let's laugh at this. This is this is just dull, yeah, and, yeah. And, and and bad. And I, I apologize to anyone listening at home going like, oh, there's like 
give us more. It's like, there's nothing more to give. Like the, the filmmakers didn't give us more. Uh, like even down to, and that's the thing, like looking at the trivia and kind of doing a bit of digging about this film, the character's name of Noah Cross is a homage to a character in Chinatown, the Roman Polanski film with Jack Nicholson. It's like, Brilliant. you're you're setting yourself up to fail there. You are you are reminding people of a far better film immediately, and uh, like other other great little points on this as well. So Hugh Dillon, the kind of villain of this piece, uh, his band Headstones actually did the like song that goes over the closing credits, which is called "Done the Math," um, which is also awful. Yeah, and it's it, re- it really reminded me of something. Again, it's, it's even that song. I was like, that sounds like a like a real poor imitation of a good song. And it's like this film, that, and that summed up the whole film for me. It's like this just feels like a poor imitation of other stuff. And yeah, as you said, it's a kind of it's tonally it's a deck of like jokers because like even if you're pulling out another card. It's, it's not something interesting on there. It's like, oh, I've got the rules to gin rummy again or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, it's a shame. It's a shame. But um, I would, I mean, if I had to like star rate it, I would literally give it half a star. I think. <laughs> if you can even do that. I don't know if you can go that low, but that would be my cinematic rating of this. Half a star. Avoid at all costs. <laughs> Perfect. Well, um, I always like to finish these off uh, by asking about the film specifically. Does Nick Cage have bad hair in this film? Um, it's just old man hair, isn't it? It's just receding old. It's it's bad. It's not good hair, but it's not like, hey, look at that haircut. Yeah. It's just like, oh, there's just an old man with a receding, thinning hairline, Yeah, and, which and we like- can all relate to. Exactly. Yeah. Like when I say bad, I'm I'm talking about like knowing levels of bad or like there are certain films where you see it and it's like that is too black to be like natural like that. Like it looks like the absence of colour as opposed to like uh, uh, anything natural. Uh, So, yeah, I'd put that down to no, he doesn't have. I don't think he has bad hair. It's kind of it's not noticeably bad anyway. Right. It's bad, but it's not so bad that it's enjoyable, like yeah. the film itself, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> and I guess another point where this film will kind of like fall down on is like, does he do anything crazy with his voice? I know, like, in the past, he's known for kind of going to weird and wonderful places with the, the kind of what he does with his voice, whether it's Vampire's Kiss or Peggy Sue Got Married, a film where Kathleen Turner asked for him to be fired because of the voice he decided to do with that kind of nasally high-pitched thing in this film does he do anything vocally dexterous again a resounding no (laughs) there is nothing outside of the box at all is there no and uh what some people want the most from cage and does he deliver on giving us any freak outs in this movie matt zero 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 it's a very restrained and just underwhelming forgettable performance there isn't a single freak out in the whole thing even when he's you know whatever situation he finds himself in and he's in some precarious situations he's composed at all times and seemingly just bored by the entire experience as indeed was i (laughs) what i found bizarre is the kind of like the the biggest moment of passion we get from him is when he's annoyed at the kid in the car for throwing a paper airplane at him and it's like You've been in like life-threatening situations. You're trying to uncover this kind of like death camp situation of like New Eden, and like you're trying to deliver a message to like the the good guys in Canada. But like, and it's like, yeah, you're 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 affronted with all of these like kind of harrowing like mo- like incidences where it's life and death, and the thing you're kind of most passionate about is a kid throwing a paper airplane at you. It's like, really? Is this is this what it's come to? <laughs> yeah, again, there's just there's so many moments of just head scratching. What have I just witnessed? The the other scene which stood out for me is just like what the fuck was when they're with their friends in the north, and the guy's like, yeah, the uh, you know, the will the wilderness people or whatever he calls them, they came. 
they rape my daughter. Anyway, like, who's for tea? And you're like, what the fuck? Again, you say, like, it could have been a very Mad Max-esque, dark, violent, harrowing, mm-hmm. you know, Mandy-type film. But instead, you get these allusions to this real bleak world of atrocity and, you know, just, like, absolute no regard for human life. Yeah, but they then me- it's presented in such a grey box. They meet that guy, Ad- Adolf Schroeder, don't they? Who's like, and him and his family are kind of, they're probably the most dystopian like dressed of the whole film. Yeah. And, and they're sort of living in a school bus, aren't they? They've got a little school bus at their scrapyard. And I think after he delivers that line that you just said about, about the rape, he, he says he's like giving them like words of warning, gives them uh, pills to like circumvent ra- like radiation poisoning or whatever. And he kind of like looks them dead in. He looks the uh, Rachel dead in the eye and goes like, um, "They will rape you, and they will rape the boy and the boy." Oh, yes, yeah. like, yeah. like Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's. What I mean, they go to these such dark moments from out of nowhere, and then it's just it's back to this bland vanilla skyline again, and you're like. What did I just hear there? Yeah, you're back. You're back to comedy moments of eyes going down drains and like. Yeah. Even the the moment where the kids like nearly hit by the car is just like that. Seems like there should be like a comedy like horn. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, wah, yeah, wah. yeah. Proper Benny Hill moment. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah so just literally, I, I can't, I can't think of or find anything to say that's nice about this film. I, uh, I I apologise for getting you on the podcast uh, to talk about this film, Matt. But I, um... well, it's funny because originally you were like, do you want to come on and talk about Rumblefish? And I was like, shit, yeah. And then I was like, oh, it'd be good to get it out before the book's out, though, so I can give that a cheeky plug. And you're like, yeah, well, we can make that happen. But the only caveat is it has to be this film. But do you know what? I'll try anything once. Perfect. Um... And I've I've tried it and that's it for me. And, you know, I can now tick that off the list. Amazing, Matt. Where can people keep up to date with everything you're doing, whether it's Life in the Stocks, um, the book, or just keeping up to date with you online? Well, hopefully when tours and shows and things return as well, I'll be out gigging and DJing and doing some live Q&As and all that stuff as well. But yeah, everything can be found on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The handle for all of them is the same, at Matt Stocks DJ, Matt with two Ts. And yeah, I'm doing two episodes a week at the moment of the podcast. We're approaching the episode 200 mark um, next week on the show. Well, it depends when this goes out, but Rob Halford's coming up from Judas Priest. I've got Mark Lanigan coming up. So I've got some really good guests. And yeah, the book's out early December and people can get that from Amazon or Waterstones or they can get signed copies from the Rare Bird website, which is rarebirdlit.com. Um, and yeah, they can subscribe to the podcast on all podcast platforms, Acast, Spotify, iTunes, etc. Um, but thanks for having me on, dude, and congratulations with the show. It's uh, <laughs> it's a cool, it's a cool format. Like I think he's the gift that keeps on giving, even in the moments of you know downtime, such as the career period we've been in today. You still get to talk about you know all the external fun details that make Nicolas Cage who he is and yeah what a great idea for a show thank you so much Matt uh, yeah thanks for coming on and raging with Cage with me always a pleasure to rage with the cage And there we have it, guys. As we, as a planet, step ever closer to a world that resembles the Humanity Bureau, I step ever closer to the currentness of Nicolas Cage's career. I'm not sure if currentness is the word I'm looking for. I mean, I'm, I'm getting ever closer to to being on top of Nicolas Cage's career. I'm going to be up to date. I'm going to I'm going to just be waiting for new releases. That's going to be I'm going to go into a pupil state and then emerge a butterfly into an, a, a new form of caged in. I would like to thank Matt once again for coming along and talking to me about this film, about Nick Cage, about rock and roll, about all yeah, all the things we get into, about his fantastic book. And I know I sound like a corporate shill here. Uh, I was lucky enough to be sent a copy of the book by Matt and... 
I'm really enjoying it. I, I wouldn't have asked Matt to be on this podcast in the first place if I wasn't a massive fan of what he was doing. And uh, yeah, the fact he sent me his book, I was kind of flabbergasted in the first place. But like as I'm as I'm digitally leafing through it and kind of getting into it and stuff like that, I'm I'm absolutely loving it. So yeah, if 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 Matt like takes your interest, do be sure to go over and check out his podcast and like make sure like yeah, if you, if you like the cut of his jib, uh, head on over to all those places that are mentioned, whether it's Amazon or rare bird lit to pick up a copy of his book because it is it is a yes it's a work of real real passion and love and i couldn't recommend it anymore for this episode as well there's uh matt shouted him out but i'd like to thank uh stew whiffin of off the beaten track the scroobius pip drunk casts and hardcore listing for telling matt about the podcast and kind of sending him my way without i guess without that kind of bit of cred uh, Matt probably wouldn't have done this podcast. Would have thought it's just a, it's a madman living in his parents' spare room. No way am I going to go talk Nick Cage to that guy. But he did. Uh, and as I always say, if you felt differently about this film, uh, I've had some conversations online recently when I kind of posted that this was going to be an upcoming episode, and somebody was like, "I really like that film." So if if you feel like that person, if if you disagree with me and Matt in any way. If you disagree with me on any of these uh, films that are discussed on the podcast, please do reach out. You can do that via email, which is cagedinpod at gmail.com. Or you can catch me on all the socials, which is cagedinpod, uh, at cagedinpod on all of those. So that's uh, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And if you would like to support the podcast, you can do that by heading over to patreon.com forward slash caged in pod where you will get the episodes without all of this without the intros and the outros and stuff like that you will just get the the episodes kind of in their rawest form and you'll get them a week early so uh if you're listening to this one you could sign up right now for two pound and you'll get next week's uh fantastic episode which is with Clarice Lockery. I, I hesitated on her name there for a second just because I was unsure if that was next week's episode. But it is. It's Teen Titans Go to the Movies. And me and Clarice spoke maybe five months ago, maybe April time. And uh, so some of the chat in that may be quite lockdown one heavy it might be very pandemic heavy but i think a lot of it is just talking about the joy that is teen titans go to the movies so do be sure to check that episode out and yeah you can listen to that right now if you're over on patreon you can also buy one of the fantastic caged in superman prints uh, designed by tim hornsby over at caged in run. Dot com or if you don't like to part with your money you can always just head on over to apple podcast leave the five star rate and review or rate this wherever you're listening to the podcast now all of that really does help get the podcast out to more ears and i, I know you hear it on every podcast like please please rate review subscribe all of that but it it really does there's obviously a lot of big dogs in this there's a lot of podcasts that are backed by massive massive companies and then there's the kind of lone wolf the kind of indie dogs out there like myself who are just doing this for the love of it and so and any support like that you can even if it's over on uh, social media and you're just sharing the post liking the post and stuff like that the more stuff like that any any of the kind of low level like low level indie podcasts scene all of those if you support any of those uh I'll, I'll shout out a few right now actually i'd love to shout out sudden double deep uh absolutely love those guys i recently signed up to their patreon uh <laughs> spotlight podcast again these are people who've been on the podcast but i only get people on the podcast because i like what they do uh, liam matt and paul over at spotlight are lovely guys and uh yeah i love just I love, I love i love i love listening to them they've they've helped me with guests whether it's david trumbull whether it is daryl from 
sudden double deep if it wasn't for those guys they wouldn't have been on uh so yeah check out spotlight if you haven't already uh check out film floggers a fantastic new podcast where they kind of take a film to task every week and at some point in the future i won't say what we're talking or when but i will be guesting on their podcast uh, other podcasts a shout out uh betamax video club uh rich nelson who hosts that fantastic guy i actually guested on a very early episode of that speaking about lethal weapon but he kind of delves back into the 80s and just so passionately talks about stuff whether it's good or bad just kind of get get gets gets into nitty-gritty has fantastic guests and um a podcast i absolutely adore is script apart hosted by al horner uh al manages to i often feel like he has just got a key to my brain and kind of goes in there like john cusack in being john malkovich and goes you know what petros would love to know about how the first draft of zodiac came about so let's let, let's speak to the scriptwriter about that and how it differs to the actual film and he's so many films like that whether it's nightmare before christmas 10 things i hate about you moonlight in the loop i, I can go on yeah check out scripts part uh it's a, another fantastic podcast just just if you, if you love something support it and it's so easy to support things without any kind of financial uh give it yeah you don't have to give away any money you don't have to financially support stuff you can just like it listen and enjoy it and tell people if you enjoy it go hey you know what i think you might enjoy this as i always say on this podcast this could be somebody's favorite podcast the next film we're talking about could be somebody's favorite film so as always guys i have been petrus patsubus i have been caged in you have been amazing Bye-bye. This podcast is presented by the Breadcrumbs Collective, home of the Pod Charles Cinecast, Caged In Coppola Connections, A Drip Town Limery Main, Franchised, and many more to come. Our shows are all presented ad-free and made possible by listeners like you. Please support our shows by subscribing, leaving ratings and reviews, and becoming patrons at patreon.com. If you'd like to learn more about Breadcrumbs, head over to breadcrumbscollective.com. Breadcrumbs. It's more than a podcast network. It's family.